we declare your faithfulness. Your word is established forever. It is faithful and true. It endures at all times, oh Jesus. Your word is faithful.
Thank you. 
great to see you here tonight. And I don't know about you, but uh, tonight I haven't come to, to be entertained, but I've come to have a life change tonight. I've come tonight believing, not just to be surprised with some new tricks or anything like that, but I'm believing for the Word of God that is alive and real to come and shift the trajectory of my life. I'm believing tonight that the seeds of, that, of revelation that will come will come into my heart that will not just sit there and go do nothing but propagate through my life that my life would add greater value that my life would bring heaven into earth in a greater dimension it's my prayer that tonight that tonight your hearts will be open that you won't just want to become and just be surprised at some new ideas but actually allow the revelation allow the word of God to come into your heart and to propagate your life so that the trajectory that your life will change tonight I'm so grateful for a great man of God here tonight and uh you know, I know my life has been changed by what you have brought. And uh, we are so looking forward to having you come in a while. And uh, so I want to just turn to somebody and just greet them tonight. It's great to have you here. Just find your seats. It is great to have you here, and uh, so excited to welcome you, especially if you're here from another church. My name is Dave, and this is my wife, Kate the pastors of the church here, and I want to extend a very warm welcome to you tonight, and uh, tonight I know you're going to be deeply impacted by the, by the message that Shane brings, and uh, I, I don't know about you, but right from the first time um, this, this particular trip that Pastor Shane came, I couldn't believe it that uh, what he was talking about was, it was almost like he'd been sitting on discussions that we've been having in the last week, almost like word for word, and uh, so tonight uh, we're not just receiving him as a is a great teacher, but we also believe, uh, receive him as a prophet, that uh, prophet will always bring somebody, bring us closer to God. And tonight I'm believing that uh, that what shame has in, his, has in his heart tonight will come into our hearts and bring us closer in a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. But tonight we're just going to first of all just check out and see what we've got coming up. We've got some great events happening, so let's just quickly check that out. Join Grant and Wendy on 
Christians Foundations course starting Sunday, May 28th at 2 p.m. If you are interested, head to the Arsenal desk to register today. Coming this May, Hawks Bay Lively House presents Healing Shame Restoring Glory Conference with Sandra Kirsten. This conference will be held here at Bay City on Friday the 19th of May and Saturday the 20th of May. There is no charge for this conference, but an offering will be taken. Come along and have your life transformed by God. Next Sunday is our special Mother's Day service. Have you invited your mum or mum you know yet? This is going to be a great morning of spot prizes, gifts for mum, baby dedications and much more. Also, just to remind you that Luke's lunch will not be running and will be back in June. That's all for Bay City News. Enjoy the service. Fantastic. Some great things coming up. Who's going to bring a mum next Sunday? Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> and it's going to be great. We're going to have a fantastic time. And uh, tonight we're just going to take up an offering. And we want to bless Shane uh, financially. And uh, Shane travels full-time on the road. And uh, tonight, I don't know about you, but I want to sow into his life. I'm, I'm, I want to invest first and, and believe that God is going to um, uh, pour out his blessing into our life. And who can I see? There's Sergeant down the back there. Get her, lad. Welcome. <laughs> Great to have you, Pastor Sergeant and family. Beautiful to see you. So just as the band plays, just quietly, uh, we're just going to pass the buckets around. If you, uh, if you haven't got something on, on you right now, we've got online. You can go onto our website. You can use Bush Bay or you can do an IOU. Please part by tomorrow. Honour that by tomorrow. That'd be wonderful. <laughs> so let's just bless the Lord right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Shane. Thank you for bringing him uh, to we thank you for the ministry you've entrusted to his life. Father, tonight, Lord, we, we bless him financially. We pray today, Lord, that your, your word and your spirit will just come and refresh him today in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for our friendship. We pray today, Lord, that your, your, your spirit will be poured out and refresh upon his life in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You guys can be seated. I think we got to give the musicians a big hand. They show up early. They stay late. They're brilliant. If you're the type likes to follow along in the Bible, Ruth chapter 4. I want to follow along with uh, what I talked about tonight. I, sorry, this morning. And so I want to, um, let me see if I can make this work. There we go. 
Great. Okay, so I want to follow on with what we talked about um, this morning. If this is your first time with us on your way out, there's a resource table over there. Huge amounts of stuff. Everything's available in, in CD, DVD, USB, or direct download. And so 100% of the profit from that goes to our main mission in the world, which is to take care of the poor and the afflicted. So um, come on back there. The, the thing I do want to ask you to do tonight um, is act quickly. If you know you're not going to get something, God bless you. I love you. If you know you are, if you could act quickly, my goal would be to leave it open for about 10 minutes or so. Um, the reason for that is I want to be kind to our volunteers back there. I want to be kind to myself. Um, we, we want to pack, we have to pack that stuff up and take it with me tomorrow to para para umu. All right. So uh, yeah, so in other words, yeah, I just can't, you know, I don't, I don't want to be here all night. I don't mind standing there if you're interested, but at the same time, it, you, you know, if you know you're going to get something, please do so first. If you could do that, if you could buy and then chat, that would be awesome, right? So if you buy first, chat second, that would just be great. All right, so anytime I preach, I want, th I want a couple things to happen. I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scripture to get bigger, not smaller, all right? So anytime, I don't, I'm not interested in being right. Nobody's right about God. He's God. I want Jesus to be glorified or bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. And I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. And, and everything I've said this weekend, everything I'm going to say tonight has two applications. One is individual for yourself the other is systemic for a church trying to build a Christ-centered community in Hastings, New Zealand, all right? So we got an individual application, and we have a systemic application. I want to talk to you tonight about shame and the importance of the church being the answer to shame. And more importantly, I want to put some language around that because the problem with saying something like that is if we don't have language around it, it gets very frustrated. So I want to put some language around it that makes this very, very doable. Okay, so I'm going to read a passage from the end of the book of Ruth. But to do that, I want to set up the context, okay, because I didn't read the other parts of it. So here's the basic story of the book of Ruth. You have a family of four that doesn't have enough food to eat. They take refuge in a country called Moab. Moab was a cursed people because of an incident that happened at a place called Shittim years and years and years and years before that, where the Moabite king hired an, an Aramite witch doctor to put a curse on the people, and then there was this huge outdoor immorality festival where they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. As a result of that, Moses completely overreacts and loses the plot and says in Deuteronomy 23 that no Moabite will ever be welcomed by God. Of course, that's not true because Ruth's a Moabite, David's a Moabite, Jesus is 132nd Moabite, so we got a real problem. Right? Sometimes the Bible's telling you what happened. Sometimes the Bible's telling you what God's saying. In this case, the Bible's just telling you a story about what happened. Ruth, despite all of this, acts with incredible bravery and chooses to make a statement, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So what she does is she chooses not to stay stuck in Moab. She chooses to put her faith in the character of a loving God instead of a list of rules because she realizes that God loves people more than the rules. God loves people more than the rules. And so she gets into Israel, which leads me to this, as a Christian who loves scripture, fulfill scripture instead of simply being right about it. That's a systemic and an individual application. We don't want to be known as a group of people who are simply right about the Bible. We want to do something better than that. We want to be people who fulfill scripture. And to fulfill scripture is simply this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and you can fulfill it instead of simply being right about it. That was Jesus' whole life in a nutshell. He didn't stone the lady, even though the Bible said to stone the lady. He didn't stone the 
person for breaking Sabbath, even though the Bible said to do that. Jesus was not interested in being right about the bullet points of Scripture. Jesus was interested in fulfilling Scripture, which is simply doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. We also talked about this morning that God loves people more than the rules. So, so Ruth gets into Israel, and because the Israelites chose to treat her as they would want to be treated, instead of throwing her out, which is what Deuteronomy 23 suggested, uh, David is born, and Jesus is born, and we are now still here. She has a problem. She's a single woman. And in those days, women not attached to men were not even people. They were called liminal, liminal people. And so the whole point of the book of Ruth is, we got to get you a husband because a woman not attached to a man in those days was a real, real problem. And so Ruth asked to glean behind Boaz's uh, harvesters. And the law permitted her to do that. You couldn't let someone not glean. But Boaz goes further than that, and Boaz lets her glean and gather. Boaz is a very generous man. He's an example of what it means to not just be right about the Bible. To be right about the Bible meant he required her to glean. But he doesn't just do that. He says, you cannot just glean, sweetie. You can glean and gather. But you know what? She doesn't take advantage of that generosity. She ends up just gleaning, and she works very hard, and she gains a good reputation, which leads me to my fourth observation in review. Your behavior determines your reputation, not your redemption. Your behavior, in the, book, in the story of the book of Ruth, her redemption was free and totally based on the choice of another person, the Redeemer. But her reputation was sealed by her behavior. You never want to be a group of people who confuse redemption with reputation. Redemption is always free, always free. But your reputation is always determined by your behavior. If you ever run the risk of confusing redemption and reputation, you run the risk of being a very forgiven person whose name means nothing because your reputation is out of control. Your redemption is always free, but your reputation is always determined by your behavior. So she, she does this stuff, um, working very hard and gaining a good reputation. Let's say it this way. Doing the next one thing you know to do can unstick your life. She unstuck her life with three things. She chose to believe God loves people more than the rules, to fulfill scripture instead of being right about it, and to take her one next step to Bethlehem. And then once she was there, she took her one next step to the field. And once she was in the field, she took her one next step. Let's say it this way. There's always a way through the middle of the night, but you have to trust the master of transition. Well, what happens in this story is Ruth becomes very proactive in what the book of Ruth calls the middle of the night. It says, in the middle of the night, she waited for him to get drunk, and then she crawled under the covers with him and uncovered his feet. This is massively dark, massively manipulative, and incredibly sexual, right? There's no mistaking what's going on here. When you wait to the middle of the night and you crawl under the covers with a man, he knows what you're on about, and so do you. And it makes it very clear. It says that she lifted the corner of his garment. The word corner there is the word kanape. In Deuteronomy 22, it says, See to it that you do not commit adultery with a man by lifting his kanape. The Jews, just like us, use metaphors when it comes to sexuality. No person speaks in straight little terms when it comes to sex, or, or we would just be weird. No married couple in this room, if you're feeling in the mood, would look at each other and say, Hello, 
would you like to retire to the bedroom and have intercourse? Nobody would do that. That would just be flipping insane, right? And weird. We use metaphors around that. So did the Jews. Um, sometimes a canape was the corner of a garment. Sometimes to lift a canape was to lift a canape, right? right? So, so you, you have to sort of, right, was this a canape or a canape, right? So you, you have this kind of thing. And then it says that when she was in there, she uncovered his feet, which is so funny because sometimes in Hebrew, feet means feet. Sometimes in Hebrew, feet is a metaphor for genitals, right? And the context will always give it away. For instance, it says that Saul went into the cave to use the toilet. The Hebrew says he went into the cave to uncover his feet, right? So the obvious thing is it's talking about something. In Song of Solomon, it says that the man came back from a long trip and wanted to, you know, get busy. And he says, hey, um, do you want to? And she says, oh, my feet are already clean. Must I dirty them again? Once again, obviously feet, right? Now, it's... It's, 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 very, it's, it's very important, though, to, to not always see it. The context will always tell you. If the context is obviously a foot, read it as a foot, right? It was a very common Middle Eastern tradition to do a foot washing. So when the Bible talks about a foot washing, it's actually a foot, right? It's like, like it's not like, hey, come here. Right, right? No, 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 no. That's foot, right? But here's what happens. Ruth goes in, lifts up his canape, and uncovers his feet, right? All kinds of stuff is being offered here. Boaz, if you go back and read the story, Boaz says, hold on. And there's so much you've got to understand about history for this to make sense. He says, hold on. You're trying to invoke the kinsman redeemer law, which is exactly what Ruth was trying to do. He says, wait a minute. Deuteronomy 25 says that the kinsman redeemer law can only be redeemed in the middle of the day at the town gate in front of witnesses. You're trying to do this in the middle of the night privately. This won't be legal. And I really do like you, so I really, 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 really want this to be legal. So Boaz says, sneak out of here. Don't let anybody see that you were in here lest you could die. And tomorrow we'll call a meeting at the town gate with ten witnesses so that this thing can be legal because I do really care about you and I want this to be legal. There's so much going on in that whole story. Boaz is now at a place where he wants to be sure his union with Ruth is legal. Now, you're caught up with the story. This is Ruth chapter 4. This is how, this is how it goes from here. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and, and behold, the Redeemer, so here's this other guy, uh, of whom Boaz is spoken of, had come by. Oh, by the way, Boaz says, you think I'm the kinsman Redeemer. I'm the one that has to marry you because your husband died. I'm actually not. There's one closer than me that we have to get his permission, right? And he's just simply called the Redeemer. So so Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, you guys sit down here. This was all prescribed in Deuteronomy 25 about how to invoke the kinsman Redeemer law. This is exactly what's going to happen. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these witnesses sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you, right? Now I want you to notice, he doesn't mention Ruth, does he? He mentions land. 
He says, hey, there's a piece of land that rightfully belongs to you. If you want to redeem it, redeem it right now in front of these witnesses. We got it all set up here. If you do not want to redeem it, tell me now and I will do so. And watch his response immediately. And he said, I will redeem it. Why wouldn't you? Free land? Are you kidding me? I like land. Everybody likes land. Of course I'll take free land. No trouble. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. In other words, there's a, there's a, sub, there's, there's a subcontract attached to this. It, you don't just get land, you get a Moabite woman. There's a Moabite woman. Now, what's the problem with a Moabite woman? Deuteronomy 23, she is not supposed to be there. So there's a real trouble with this. Um, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So watch what Boaz says. If you want land, you can have the land, but what's attached to that land is a Moabite woman. And it's not just a Moabite woman, it's a Moabite woman that doesn't have any children. What that means is you have to produce children with her. So not only do you get the land, you get the Moabite woman. And not only do you get the Moabite woman, you have the responsibility to sire children with her because that's what the rules say, right? Then the Redeemer said, watch how fast he backpedals. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it then, lest I impair my own inheritance. In other words, I'm not taking on a Moabite woman. She's cursed, number one. Number two, if I have children with her, that only splits my inheritance another way. It impairs my own inheritance. Now, the sentence, I impair my own inheritance, literally says this in Hebrew. She is a bad investment. I am not going to, I want the land, but I don't want Ruth because Ruth is a bad investment. So take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem this land because it's attached to Ruth. And Ruth is a bad investment, so you take it. You are more than welcome in front of these witnesses to do so. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. By the way, that's how you know the book of Ruth was written way, 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 way later, right? Two reasons. One, it puts little excerpts like that in there. Hey, this is how they did it in the olden days. And two, it gives Ruth's lineage all the way past David. How would they have known that in that day? So obviously this story was added way, way later. And it says, it says concerning and exchanging, to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal immediately. In other words, you don't want it? Great. I'm going to take it. He was jumping on this opportunity. Why? He really loved Ruth. Ruth was a, a uncovering a feet sort of girl, right? He loved this, right? He loved her hard work. He loved her reputation. He loved what she meant. He loved her heart. He, he loved the purity of her. He loved the fact that she didn't take advantage of his generosity. He wanted to make sure this happened right then. Then Boaz said to the elders of the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from you the hand of, of, of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mayon, and also Ruth the Moabite. Now, if this sort of makes you nauseous, join the club. What you have here is ten men deciding which man did Ruth belong to as a piece of property. I know that's nauseating, and that's disgusting, and it's not what God approved of. It's just an accurate record of what life was like back then, okay? So this is what's happening. Um, the widow of Mayon, and I have bought her to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from amongst his brothers and from the gate of his native place. By the way, in, in one Jewish history book, it tells a story that Boaz went through a tragedy where he lost all of his children. So what's happening in this story, in one sense, Boaz is redeeming Ruth, but in another sense, Ruth is redeeming 
Boaz. He's giving her, if he's get, she's giving him an exact fresh start on a family and on life. And he says, you are witnesses this day. Now, I want to dig into this a bit, and hopefully we'll find ourselves in this systemically and individually. A couple of observations. One, this is an ancient story that is behaving like one. A woman is being discussed as property. We shouldn't be okay with that. God's not okay with that, even though it's in the Bible. Sometimes the Bible is just accurately reporting what was happening at the time. That was life back then. The redeemer in this story is happy to take the land, but not Ruth. He calls her a bad investment. Now, what's interesting in the story is that Boaz is named and Ruth is named, but the redeemer is never named. It's just called the redeemer, the redeemer, the redeemer. He's never named. The reason for that is that if you go look it up, his name in Hebrew is Poloni Al Maloni. Now, <clears throat> it's a whole lot easier to just say the Redeemer, right? Right? His name, can you imagine naming your kid? Oh, he's beautiful. Let us call him Poloni Al Maloni. Now, his, his Hebrew name is Poloni Al Maloni, which isn't a name at all. Poloni Al Maloni means such and so. Thigamabops it. Dootsy doo. That bloke over there, such and so, a such one, that, that guy. Poloni Al Maloni literally means such and so. So in this story, Poloni Al Maloni says that Ruth is a bad investment. Has that ever happened to you? Somebody not even worth naming is making you feel worse about yourself. Has someone not even worth naming ever made you feel worthless? Has anybody, has somebody ever made you feel really bad about yourself and actually the truth is they weren't naming? Let, let's, let's say it this way. Let's apply it this way. Have you ever, have we ever been told by someone not important enough to name that you're not worth it? That you're a bad investment? Let's, let's, let's say this individually. Have we ever been guilty of gauging relationships based on economics alone? This story made me stop and ask that question of myself. I wonder if there's anybody that I haven't allowed into my inner circle just because from my gauge, they're a bad investment. I wonder, and I had to ask myself that before the Lord. Lord, am I guilty of gauging relationships based on economics alone? In this story, the Polonial Maloney, the Redeemer says, I want the land that brings value, but she's a bad investment. He cut her off based on her perceived lack of economic contribution. I wonder if we've ever been guilty of that. Have we ever been the such and so, the Poloni Al Maloney in this story? Let's say it this way. Have we ever shunned someone because of the social stigma around them? What's happening in this story is that her social stigma as a Moabite and her economic stigma as a widow is keeping the Poloni Al Maloney from receiving her. I wonder what we can learn from this. I wonder if we ever expect to build the church of the Redeemer if we're cutting people off because of social stigmas. If we're telling people from certain social backgrounds, you're not welcome here. And of course, I'm talking about who? The unrepentant overeaters. We talked about that this morning. Those flipping gluttons, they cause such a real problem, right? So, so if we're cutting people off because of their social stigma, or if we cut people off because of their perceived lack of economic contribution. How can we ever build the church of the Redeemer if we're doing that? And how can our individual life ever represent what God is all about if we live that way individually? I wonder if we need to be set free from the Poloni Al Maloney. Or I wonder if we need to repent from being 
the Poloni, Al Maloney. Have we ever done this? Let's say it a couple of different ways. So the bank tells you that you're too big of a risk. You don't qualify. And here's what happens, right? You walk into the bank and you put your entire life, you've come up with this great business idea, it's all working out, you just need some capital to get going, and you walk into the bank, and you don't even know that guy's name. If he doesn't have a name tag on, you have no idea who he is. He's a nameless person who your entire financial life is in his hands. That is Poloni, Al Maloney. You go to a networking event, and you're embarrassed by your name tag or your title. So you're walking around this networking event, and everybody's got a name tag and what they do. And you're so intimidated. Oh, it's Ron, Dr. Ron. Oh, Surgeon Paul. Oh, business owner Bill. Oh, lawyer Larry. And you look, and you're like, oh, I run the media at the church. Oh, right? Oh, no. Oh, oh, I work at the 7-Eleven. What the heck, right? And so you're covering your name tag. And here's the truth of it, right? You're in the room with a group of people that you wouldn't even know their name if they didn't have a name tag. And you're allowing them to determine how you feel about yourself in that moment. That is Poloni Al Maloney. When asked, what do you do for a living, you recoil because you know they will look at you differently. Let's say it this way. You're targeted by office bullies who are simply envious of your promotion. Oh, you're the pretty girl that got the promotion. There's one explanation for that. And it can't possibly be that you worked hard and you stayed late and you showed up early. Oh, no, it's got to be some other reason. And nameless people are determining how you feel about your worth. Or, or we behave in some destructive way because some deep desire to please our father. Yet no one around even knows his name. Poloni. Al Maloney. I traveled this world. I did 467 one-hour talks last year. I know this might surprise you, but in 467 one-hour talks, some people don't like me. I know it's going to surprise you. And here's the thing. I'll just confess this openly. This is something about me that I hate. I hate this about myself. I've tried everything I know to do to shift it, and I just can't shift it. So it's just, it's just I don't know what to do with it, actually. I wish that I could focus entirely on the 10,000 people who wrote me nice things. But when 10,000 people write me nice things, all it takes is one redneck to write me a horrible letter. And I go to bed at night thinking about that guy. And I can't believe that that's true about me, but it's true. It actually cuts me. It actually wounds me. It's like I could have 10,000 people going, whoa, you changed my life. Wow, you shifted me here. Job's a poem. Whoa, right? I could have... 10,000 people saying that, and one redneck plonker writes a mean letter, and I go to bed at night thinking about the one redneck plonker. That is Poloni, Al Maloney. That is when such and so, a nameless person, someone who didn't even bother to sign their name to the letter they sent me, can affect how I feel about myself at night. I wish, I wish to God I could shift. I wish to God it didn't matter. I wish, like, I, I know people who are, like, soulless. Like, they can get stuff like that and bend it and never think about it again. And I wish I could be like them. Except for when I look at them in other areas, they're also soulless there. 
I just can't be soulless. I'm a mercy-driven dude, and that's just the negative part of it. But Poloni Al Maloney's exist in all of our life. If you think about it hard enough, all of us have a nameless sort of thing that is how we feel about ourselves. And all of us have been put in situations where we can choose to be the Boaz redeemer or we can choose to be the Poloni Al Maloney who says someone is a bad investment. Oh, they shouldn't come to this church. They're a bad investment. You know what the risk is? If you let all those people, if you let that busload of unrepentant overeaters come in here, do you know what the community might say about this place? That might not be worth it. It's Poloni Al Maloney. Let's brings us to this. This has a huge lesson to teach us on shame. Now, now here's the problem. Here's the problem with shame. All of us have an internal knowing that shame is a bad thing. Like, like think about it. Like, if, if somebody does something, right, and it's, like, really embarrassing or something or out of line, we might even say, what, shame on you, right? Or another way we might say, from a preaching perspective, we might stand up on stages and go, do you know what? You need to be set free from shame. And nobody disagrees with that. I'll never get a letter about that. Shane Willard said people need to be set free from shame. No, never. Everybody agrees with that. The problem with shame is we do not have the language. We just don't have the language to deal with it. And finally, finally, I read some research that I think helps put language around shame. That has helped me put some language around how to set people free from it and what the church's role in it is. Uh, the researcher, I think her name's Karen Wilkerson. It's, it's, it's failing me right now from this stage, but Karen Wilkerson's, I think, is her name. Here's how she defines shame through, through like a huge research thing from the University of Washington. Here's what she said. Shame is the manifestation of the fear of not belonging. That is, I've never heard a better definition than that about shame. Shame is the fear of not belonging. Shame is felt when close belonging is threatened because of something about us. So, so in the Ruth story, what about Ruth threatened her to not belong? She, she was a Moabite. Her race threatened her. Her gender threatened her. Her economic status threatened her. There was all kinds of things that the Polonial Maloney was pointing out and focusing on going, you can't belong in my world because you're a bad investment. This is shame. Shame is when you walk into a new group of people and you hide things because if they knew everything, you might not be accepted and belong. That is shame. This is why when you walk into a group of people and you don't care if they like you or not, you just let it all hang out. But when you walk into a new group of people and you do care what they think about you, you end up hiding a lot of things from your past because you're not sure if they would accept you if they actually knew. That's the fear of not belonging. It's shame. Let's put some specific language around this. What if they, what if they found out blank about me? Would they still accept me as a part of their world? So, so what if they found out I was a homosexual? Would they still let me belong here? Could I be a part of their world if they found out I struggled with my sexual orientation? What about if they found out I was divorced? If they knew I was a divorced person, could I still belong in their community? If there's a fear of that, there'll be shame. If there's shame, there'll be hiding. If there's hiding, no one can deal with anything and the sickness prevails, right? What if they found out I was, a broken, I was from a broken home? What if they found out that about me? Would they let me belong 
If there's fear about that, there's shame. What if they found out my last name was different from my mom's? This is one of the major courses of shame amongst 7 to 10-year-olds, according to research, is when a kid's mother goes through a divorce, if she gets remarried quickly and her last name is different than hers, one of the major causes of shame from 7 to 10-year-olds is having their name called out and their name is different than their mom's name because they have a fear if they're the only kid in the class whose last name is different than their mom's name, they feel like they have a fear of not belonging in the proper ethos in that class. Shame. Shame. What if they found out I was a convicted criminal? Would they let me belong to their group? What if they found out I was a former prostitute? What if they found out I was a current prostitute? What if they found out I was an addict? What if they found out I had a sex change 10 years ago? Would they still let me belong? What if they, what if they found out what I ate and drank, what I actually ate and drank? Listen to me. This is the systemic application for the church. The church can never be a life-giving community if people have a fear of belonging. The church has to create an atmosphere where every person can belong regardless. They can belong here before they believe, and they can believe before they become. We have to give people space, particularly the Holy Spirit, to do all the convicting and all the changing. And the only way to build authentic community is to clearly communicate to our world, no matter what your issue is or where you've come from or what you're dealing with, you can belong here with no fear of shame. Because if you hide it, we can't deal with it. We don't want you to hide it. We want to bring it out into the light so that the Spirit of God can deal with it. That is the only way to do that. This even has more specific applications for us individually. Like, have you ever made that decision to go to the gym? You know, and you're like, oh, I'm not very fit. And so I have a fear of not belonging to the gym, so I don't go, which only makes me more unfit, right? Now, now the gym business has really jumped on this, particularly with women, because what they worked out is, is that women in general do not like to be gawked at by men at the gym. So they've created a lot of women-only gyms. Why? Because women have a fear of being gawked at by the men. And in particularly, they don't want to be compared to the CrossFit champion on the treadmill next to them. Right? Right. Exactly. So it's like, we can't do that. That's a fear of belonging. Or, or what about money? What if people thought you had money, but actually you don't? And if you ever got put in a situation, like what if they thought you had money, you actually don't, and they invited you to an investor's club, and they're asking you for $100,000 of operating capital to be a 20% partner in a venture capital thing, and you don't want to admit you don't have money, because if you admit you don't have money, you might not belong to that group anymore. That's shame. That's shame. It's even true in attraction. Have you ever noticed the, what, what happens with attraction, right? Here's what happens. So let's say that there's a girl who's 10 times prettier than you are handsome, right? So let's say there's a girl who's 10 times prettier than you are handsome, right? And you think there's a little chemistry there. You're not sure, but you think it's impossible because she's that much prettier than you. And then you're sitting around a table, and here's how it works, right? You're sitting around a table, and then her leg brushes your leg, and you think, hmm, did her leg just brush my leg? I wonder if she did that on purpose or if I wonder if that was an accident. Surely a girl looks like that wouldn't brush my leg on purpose. What's going on there? And then one thing leads to another, and you end up talking to this person and having a conversation. So you have a girl that's 10 times prettier than you are, right? And you're now having a conversation. This leads to a first date. And at that first date, there's a huge amount of 
shame. There's a huge amount of fear of not belonging in her world. Why? Because she's so much prettier than you, right? And in the conversation, you're asking her, you're like, hey, what's your day look like tomorrow? Oh, and she goes, oh, I'm getting up at 4 a.m. for a 4.30 CrossFit class so that I could be done by 5.30 to make it to my 6 o'clock yoga class where I'm the instructor, right? And you're like, shoot, right? She's made of pure prettiness and muscle. She is made of pure muscle and prettiness. And you know, you know that you're made of like pudding and pork, right? And you're like, oh no, oh no. And so that first date, there's a huge fear of belonging. Why? Because you're made of pudding and pork. And she's made of prettiness and pure muscle, right? And so that first date, that first date, what do you order? You're like, well, I can't expose myself here. So you wear the best clothes you can to conceal your pudding and pork figure, right? And what do you do? You're like, you're like, put out all the counterfeit stuff. You're like, you know what? I'm going to order half of a grilled chicken breast, and I want, it, I want it on a shish kebab with bell peppers and onions between, so it looks huge, but it's actually not, right? And so things go that way. But then one thing leads to another, right? And what happens? The shame starts diminishing, and you start to have no fear of belonging. So you end up getting married to this girl, and two years into your marriage, you go to the same restaurant. Do you order the half chicken breast on a kebab? No, you do not. What do you do? You're like, I want 20 fried chicken wings with a double order of French fries and a large beer, right? And, and what's she thinking? She's like, my God, man, what's wrong with you? Have you no shame? Have you no fear of belonging here? And you're like, nope, you married me. <laughs> Stuck with me now, right? See, for us to build a church, we have to remove all fear of not belonging regardless of where people are. But to build your life, you also have to have no fear of belonging in order to be authentic. But sometimes keeping a healthy fear of belonging so you don't order the 20 chicken wings and the large french fries and the beer will help you keep your body in check. But other than that, shame is something we need to be set free from. We need to be set free from. Now, I'm thinking I just ran into another one of those problems. So if you guys could bring the slides up starting from there, please, that would just be awesome. If I don't, let me try this again. Sorry, guys. Uh, here we go. Research shows that there is only one variable that separates people. This is Karen Wilkinson's research. That there's only one variable. What she did is she studied 10,000 people. And she divided them into people who at the end of her study had a profound sense of love and belonging. With people who had, who had no profound sense of love and belonging. And she was trying to work out what separates the two. Was it economics? Was it education? Was it social background? Was it body image? What was it? And here's what she found. That there was no discernible difference between people who felt like they belonged and people who felt like they didn't other than this. The variable is the inner belief that I am worth loving and worth belonging. I'm worth loving and I am worth belonging. Let's say it this way. Go back to the story. Here we go, next slide. Boaz walks up to the city gate and tells people what to do, and they do it. So he was obviously a man of high influence. You ten sit there, and they did. Redeemer, you sit here, 
and they did. Obviously, he was some sort of influential dude. He is a Torah observant, even to greater generosity. The Torah said you have to let her glean, he let her glean and gather. The Torah said you couldn't let her starve, he took her into his house. The Torah said you, you have to provide for her, he's going to marry her. He is going over the top in every possible way. He is following the rules to make the thing legal with her. Let's say it this way, next one. Boaz not only takes her into his household and takes care of her, he marries her. He goes so far over the rules to show generosity. Now that leads me to this question. With all this stuff about shame and polonial maloney and laughing and all this, where does that leave us? And the question is, is what does this passage teach us about God? Maybe this passage isn't as much about Ruth, and it isn't as much about Boaz, and it isn't as much about the Polonial Maloney as it is. It's trying to show the reader something about God. And here's how the rabbis teach this last passage. They say, next slide, it's all about chesed. It's all about chesed. Chesed is a Hebrew word that means loving kindness, unmerited kindness, generosity, that the pictures associated with Hesed is a, is a swan plucking its own feathers out of its body in order to make a bed for its young. Hesed is this, a swan to great agony pulling his own feathers out so that someone else can have comfort. The Hebrew people called this zimzum. To choose purposely to get smaller so someone else could get bigger. To choose purposely to, to choose purposely to put yourself through pain so that someone else can prosper. This is Hesed. This is Hesed. This story identifies God as a God of Hesed, a God of grace that says we are not a bad investment. In this story, God says, Ruth, despite your race, despite the fact that the Bible says you're cursed. Despite the fact that you're a single woman with no rights, despite the fact that you bring nothing to the table, I love you. You are not a bad investment. The cure for shame is loving kindness, is allowing people to belong with no fear of not belonging regardless of their issues, that people can belong before they believe. I believe if we let people belong here before they sort their life out, that the presence of God is powerful enough to do all of that. We should leave all the convicting and all the changing to God, and we should just do our part and let people belong before they believe by showing loving kindness, has said. Which leads me to a few questions. Next slide. This is the stuff I want us to wrestle with before we leave for the weekend. All right? One, because God says you are worth it, can you believe that you are worthy of love and belonging? If you don't hear anything else I say all night long, please hear me say this. When people ask Jesus, what is God like? One of Jesus' responses was, what's God like? Look at the birds and look at the flowers. They do nothing to deserve it. But God feeds them and clothes them because they're worth it to him. How much more worth it are you to God than them? In other words, when asked what God is like, Jesus said, God treats people how they are worth and never as they deserve. If you want to know what it's like to be a Jesus person, Jesus people treat people how they are worth and never as they deserve. If you want to know who has the greatest marriage in this room, whoever has the greatest marriage in this room, here's what I know about them. They've learned to treat each other as they are worth and not as they deserve. You do not love your wife because she deserves it. There'll be days she will wow you with how much she deserves your love. Other days, not so much. 
That's life. You love your wife because she's worth it to you. You do not respect your husband because he deserves it. There'll be days he does. There'll be days he will amaze you with his superior intellect and problem-solving ability. There'll be days at him and go, wow, I am so glad I'm stuck with you for life. This is amazing. There will be days like that. Other days, he's going to be a flippant idiot. That's called life, right? You don't love your wife because she deserves it. You love your wife because she's worth it. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. You respect your husband because he's worth it. Kingdom people treat people as they are worth and not as they deserve. You always can tell when someone's crossed that line when they point someone out and say, the Bible says they deserve this. Yes, but the Bible also says God doesn't treat people as they deserve. God treats people how they're worth. And if God treats people how they're worth, then so should we. Maybe the cure for shame is allowing people to belong with no fear of not belonging because we're going to treat them how they're worth and never as they deserve. And then sit back and be amazed at what the presence of God could do in someone's life. I'll say it this way. Who is Poloni Al Maloney to you? Who is your Poloni Al Maloney? The nameless person or thing that makes you feel worse about yourself. Who is that? And why don't we just take a second underneath our breath. Why don't we just name them? Just call it what it is. Fear, you make me feel less than. Worry, you make me feel less than. Rejection, you make me feel less than. Dad, you make me feel less than. Who is the Poloni Al Maloney? Nameless co-worker who wrote the boss about me. You know. Who is the Poloni Al Maloney to you? Let's say it this way. Whose voice needs to get quieter in your mind? God's voice is over here going, infinite possibilities, huge plan for your life. I love you. I want to treat you as you are worth it, not as you deserve. Poloni Almaloni is going, you're not worth it. You're not worth it. You're not worth it. You're a bad investment. Whose voice needs to get quieter? Maybe we say it this way. Who are you being Poloni Almaloni to? If I understand the scripture's right. What you make happen for others, God makes happen for you. The cure for shame on your end is for you being the cure for shame on somebody else's end. If you want to be free from shame yourself. See, there's a way I could end tonight this way. I could go, okay, we're going to have an altar call tonight. And if you need to be set free from shame, I want you to come up here and we're going to pray for you. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong at all with that. But you know what? I'm just, I, that, that's going to be filled with tears and snot. And quite frankly, I just don't want to deal with that tonight. Listen. The other, way, the other way to be set free from shame is to make an intention in your heart to be the answer for that for somebody else. How do you do that? You fulfill scripture. How do you do that? You treat others as you would want to be treated. How do you do that? You let people live with zero fear of belonging. You've heard me say this from this stage so many times. How many times have you heard me say, if you guys quit having me, I'll still come hang out with Mike and Dave and these guys once a year because it's refreshing to my soul. Why are the Connells so refreshing to my soul? In memorizing this this afternoon to make sure I had it in my head so I could be smooth with it, I realized at least one answer to that. The reason is, is that I've never one time had a fear of belonging in their family regardless of what was going on in my life, right? First time I ever met Mike Connell, first time in my life, picked me up from the airport, he took me out to Hawks Bay where there's a hot chook place overlooking the, 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 the sea there, Right? And, and, we st and we sat there and we were talking about a movie. That's how spiritual it was. All of, all of a sudden, I felt like I was going to throw up. 
and I thought I was eating something bad. And then I realized, no, there was something spiritual going on. And then I didn't want to tell him because I had heard that he gets demons out of people, right? And so, so, so I didn't want to tell him because I was the new guest speaker they had never met before. And I didn't want my first impression to be I'm demon-possessed. So I hid it, right? But the more I hid it, the, more, the worse it got. And I didn't want to make a horrible first impression by throwing up in the man's car. So, so I looked at him and I said, Mike, I'm not coping. He said, oh, really? Do you want to talk about it? I said, sure. He said, what do you think's going on? I said, I have no idea. He said, I've been praying for you. Can I tell you? I said, why don't you do that? <laughs> he then had two words of knowledge. Something had happened to me when I was nine years old that was amazingly accurate, including the room I was in. And then a second one that blew my head right off my body. I couldn't believe it. He said, that is trauma from those two things. Are you tired of feeling that? I said, absolutely. He said, well, that'll be enough of that. And the entire thing left, I felt a hundred pound lighter. He then turned to me and said, have you seen the movie Shooter, right? I said, no, but do we need to talk about this? He said, if you want to, we can talk about it, but you don't have to. You just need to know that I love you right where you are. Removing fear of belonging removes shame. Didn't take a huge two-hour deliverance session. It took six seconds of submitting that to the risen Christ. The demonic oppression left. And what was the human element in it? The human element was, I'm going to remove all of your fear of belonging. Listen, when we repent, in one sense, we need to be set free from Polonial Maloney. In another sense... We need to repent from where we've made people afraid to belong. That is no good. Let's say it this way. Let's say it this way. Next one. Jesus did not die simply to forgive us, but to challenge the so-and-sos along the way. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you of sin. He died to challenge the, the Polonial Malonies, the such-and-sos along the way, to scream you are worth loving. Here's my last question I want us to deal with as a church and individually. How can we reflect that this week to someone on the outside? To someone who doesn't already belong, how can we reflect that they're worth it? Oh, oh, mentally handicapped children in China. You can do nothing to ever pay me back. You don't deserve any of this. But because I'm in your life, I declare that you're worth it to God. And I'm going to make sure you have food and shelter and education to the best of your ability because you are worth it. Oh, lady caught in sex trafficking? You can never pay me back. But I'm going to educate you. I'm going to get you off drugs. I'm going to give you options. Do you know why? It's not because you deserve it because you don't. It's because you're worth it to God. Oh, single mom on our street. You can do nothing to pay me back. But I'm going to get you groceries to get you two weeks ahead. Not because you deserve it, but because I declare that you're worth it to God. Oh, busload of unrepentant overeaters. Welcome to church. Welcome. Yes, the Bible strictly forbids your lifestyle choice. Yes, no, you don't deserve it. The good thing is, is neither do we. Ain't none of us worth a crap either. Come on in. Come on in. Because you know what? Because you know what? God treats us as we don't deserve, but as we're worth. So we're going to treat you as you are worth and not as you deserve, because that's what kingdom people do. Welcome, busloads of gluttons. <laughs> is there anybody who doesn't feel like they belong here? They're scared if they came back, they wouldn't belong. 
One text, one email, one phone call could make that difference. My brothers and sisters of Hastings, thank you so much for letting me be part of your life. I hope you really enjoyed the weekend. I hope that was thought-provoking, moving, partially funny, challenging, uh, educational. I hope you learned something about the book of Ruth that you didn't know before. I hope you especially remember the feet part. <laughs> I want you to listen to me. You can unstick your life by making a few choices. Be people who fulfill scripture, not just be right about it. Believe that God loves people more than the rules. Wake up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for your life. Take your one next step. Repent from being the Poloni Al Maloney. Set people free to belong before they look anything like us. And be set free from the so-and-sos yourself. May we be set free from shame by simply acting and setting other people free from shame. Thanks so much for being in your life. I can't wait to see you again next year. Until that time, grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Well, was that good or what? Fantastic. And um, really encourage you to get a hold of that message. If you didn't take notes, I don't know why not. I certainly did. But I encourage you to capture value. Go back over that message again. We'll have it available online. So just go and revisit it on the, on the, on the um, website and download it. Watch it again. Get into your heart because this is the thing here that will really, uh, I believe, cause us to make a difference in our own community and beyond. And it's what's wide in, in, in the life of Bay City. I remember even uh, my mum's mum, my nana, uh, she was always... It didn't really matter who we brought to the home. She was always open to, there was always a door open and people that would come, you'd never ever feel that uh, you weren't welcome. And that's the spirit in which this church was based on. One of our church values is what? The spirit to? The spirit to include. There's no caveats on it. There's no conditions on it. It's just having a spirit that will include people. And uh, one of the the things I'd like to challenge us is where is it that we're excluding people? who this week could we include into our life? What stranger, which person that's a little bit different to us could we include? Who could we bring into our home for a meal? What could we do this week that would be more inclusive? Amen? Amen? Why don't we just close our eyes and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us today. Thank you, Lord, that you included us into your world. And for that, Lord, we're forever grateful. Lord, I thank you for every person in this place this evening. I pray, Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts. Lord, enlarge us that we would uh, bring people in and carry your name and make your name great in this community and beyond. In Jesus' name. Father, I speak your blessing over every house I've represented here tonight in Jesus' name. Father, as we go from here, Lord, I thank you, Lord, that your presence will go with us and touch people's lives. And all God's people said, come on, all God's people said, Awesome. One more time, let's give it up for Shane. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. You want us to stand up and do our feet? Let's just worship God one more time. Holy Spirit, you're welcome. Holy Spirit.